0: Our sermon today, we're diverging a little from um, our regular sermon. Uh, I would be in 1 Kings, speaking about uh, King Asa, but today I'm going to direct your attention to Matthew 28, if you would, and specifically to 16 through 20. This is a section you all probably know, or I hope you all know fairly well, which is, of course, the Great Commission, <clears throat> Christ's words after his resurrection and just before his departure to the disciples, charging them. Uh, if you can bring up actually the uh, the first uh, the slide with the sermon notes on it, um, it is inevitable that after Joy and I went to uh, Israel uh, and spent so much time visiting places that I've been talking about my entire life but had never actually gone to. That I would begin bringing back pictures. Uh, I already bombarded the congregation with a slideshow on Wednesday uh, showing the various locations that we went to. I hope that was not exactly like being trapped by your uncle in the basement on the couch, you know, in, with the old slideshows in the 1970s and 80s as you ate and burned a popcorn and thought, when is this ever going to be over? But uh, hopefully, uh, this will, the mystery of this particular location and slide will become known to you as we come to this, uh, this passage and discuss the things that uh, Christ spoke to us before he departed. Let's uh, go to him and let's ask for his help in understanding his word. Please join me. God, our gracious Father, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you've taken care of us, the way that you've provided for our needs. But Lord, I confess that as I come to your word, I have a great need. I need wisdom. I need insight. I need light. Lord, I can't hope to exposit your word unless I know the power of it myself. I cannot hope to apply it to your people unless your Holy Spirit does that. Only the Spirit can call someone from darkness to light. Only the Holy Spirit can regenerate, can give that new heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would also give us new insight, new wisdom. May those who know you grow in their understanding, and may those who are still in the dark Be given your wondrous light and be freed from the kingdom of darkness and come to you. May we all, Lord, grow together in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us now as we read your word and help us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to be reading verses 16 through 20. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and spoke (coughs) to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. When we went on our trip uh, recently, to various biblical sites and also uh, Cyprus and Istanbul. Uh, The first place that we stopped at on our cruise to the Holy Land was the city of Ephesus, that city that had become the, the hub of Paul's ministry for three years until there was that silversmith's riot that you read about in the second portion of Acts chapter 19, a riot Uh, which made it a good time for him to move on to do other ministry in Macedonia and have other people take over the ministry that he's established there. Ephesus, I have to tell you, going there was absolutely amazing. I I, I loved every moment of it. From the moment we arrived to the moment that we left, I wish I could have spent more time poring over everything. I, I wished, I wished so fervently that I brought a Koine lexicon with me because everything is inscribed with Koine Greek. And whereas I learned the little letters, the, the you know the lowercase uh, to read in that, everything is in uppercase. It's, it's really helpful. So I don't know why the Greeks were always shouting, but apparently that's what they were doing. I'm glad some of you got that. Anyway, moving on. Mm-hmm. The, uh, but it was just, it was amazing to see. Uh, we, I, what made it particularly Amazing was the fact that Ephesus was only really uncovered in the 20th century, and in fact, it's really still being uncovered. There's still uh, major sites within the city limits that haven't been excavated at all. For instance, the stadium is still under, you know, feet and feet of accumulated dirt. Uh, The theater is still being put back together. There was a giant crane that was there to move the blocks that people would sit on uh, back into their original locations and so on. Um, So you were seeing when you went there, the artifacts, pretty much, although obviously they'd been broken in earthquakes and things like that, but you were seeing them as they were, and you really could imagine the city, I think, as as Paul would have seen it, looking down towards the harbor and so on, and then the theater and all the other buildings and so on. The next biblical stop was, was Patmos, and that was the island that John the Evangelist was exiled to. And the big attraction on Patmos uh, is the cave of the apocalypse. This was the cave the tradition says John lived in, and the cave where he was at when he received revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ, where the Lord told him to write, and he in turn uh, spoke these words that the Lord had given him to Prochorus, his secretary, and that was put down in the book of Revelation. Unfortunately, unlike Ephesus, however, in Patmos, This location, this cave, had been a center of Eastern Orthodox devotion for over (laughs) a thousand years. And a church had been built upon it. And the cave itself was not what, you know, you you guys have seen, or I hope you all, sorry, have seen caves. You've been in them, you know what they look like, or how dark they can be, and so on. Well, this cave was absolutely unlike other caves that we would naturally see. The cave was, was crammed full of icons, and candlesticks, and crosses, and lamps. And gold and velvet, Uh, everywhere you looked, there was some object of of Eastern Orthodox iconography and so on that was very, well, you weren't supposed to take pictures in the cave, but it was hard to, you know, aim your camera any place that there wasn't a second command violation, Uh, an image of Christ, for instance, uh, right there, or what they felt that he looked like at various stages in the development of Eastern Orthodox iconography. Uh, it was almost impossible to make up the natural features of the cave while you were there. We also began to encounter, um, in a way that we hadn't at Ephesus, a superstitious reverence for places and objects on the part of the pilgrims who were going there. They literally thought they were gaining a blessing, these people who had come to the cave that would solve their physical problems, that they were sick, they felt that by by touching these things they would be healed, uh, and that they would be helped, more importantly, to enter into heaven, that their salvation would progress merely by being there and touching things and lighting candles, that the very cave itself had a supernatural power because John had been there at some time. And although it was striking to me, although this was the cave where Revelation was written, there was literally no Revelation there. There was no gospel at the site. There was just centuries and centuries of accumulated, and I hate to use the word, but it's true, superstition that had had, had been thrust upon it. And it it struck me as I was looking at at it, and I didn't say it out loud to my wife, surrounded by by all of these pilgrims, but it didn't look too terribly different from the kind of idolatry that we saw when we visited Buddhist temples in the Far East. Very, very similar. And our our little group, myself, my wife, uh, Chaplain Rich and his wife, I I think all of us, and Joy actually mentioned it, we, we left feeling a little disgusted. Every single time. And, and, and instead of feeling, you know, yay, a baby. It was kind of a sickness at heart at what had happened to this place that, where the Lord had done such amazing work. Here we were in the very place where God revealed, think of this, his providential plans for the, the future of the world to John for his edification and for the church's upbuilding. And yet the rock walls of his temporary lodging here on earth, and temporary even on the, the island of Patmos, he didn't die there. He, he was eventually freed and, and came back to the mainland. Yet the rock walls had become of greater importance to the people visiting than the revelation that he was given. It was, it was stunning to think that. It's almost like you know Moses brings down the tablets of the Ten Commandments. And the people gather around him. And they're like, "Let us touch the tablet." Let, no, no, you don't understand, guys. It's the writing on it that's important. You know, this, no, no, the finger of God was. Oh, am I going to be healed now? Wait a minute. It's it, it's the writing. <laughs> All right. The, 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 the Thou shalt and the Thou shalt. What was this? Oh, <laughs> you know, it was. It really was that kind of experience, and that happened. To us in Jerusalem as well, particularly in the Church of the, the Holy Sepulchre. This is the holiest church from the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox standpoint in all of the Holy Land because it contains, in the same building, Golgotha and then the traditional location of his, uh, his tomb. But again, there was no revelation. It was just religious iconography, particularly Eastern Orthodox, pictures of Christ, pictures of the saints, pictures of of John, the apostles, Mary, and so on, everywhere. One thing that I found particularly heartbreaking was in the center of the room, and there was a cupola over it with gold lamps and candles burning all over the place, uh, there was a slab of rock that was absolutely smooth polished, and people were literally bowing down upon it, crying on it, uh, touching it, kissing it, uh, rubbing um, handkerchiefs on it. This was supposedly the slab upon which the body of Christ was anointed before being placed in the tomb. Now, there's no way to to absolutely verify that, but for centuries. I mean, the the slab itself was not originally polished, but years and years of rubbing it, touching it, kissing it, so on, had rubbed it perfectly smooth. And there you saw these people bowing down before a slab of rock, which they thought would bless them as they touched it. And again, both the, the Orthodox and the Catholic churches, it's, it's amazing. The Church of the Holy Sepulcher is actually, it's maintained by uh, all these different orders. They each have different rooms and shrines and chapels in this particular location. And they're, they're zealous for their particular areas and so on. If somebody leaves a door open, like an Orthodox priest leaves a uh, door open in the Franciscan Chapel, they'll actually get into fistfights over it and things. I'm not joking. Um, but... Both these churches teach the pilgrims that by going there, by, by bowing down before these things, by, by just being in the building, that they gain blessings, that they gain miraculous healings. If you're Roman Catholic, you get time off in purgatory by, doing, by, by being there. And again and again, it left us with this feeling of kind of yuck. Here we are at the traditional site of Golgotha, the traditional site of the tomb, and yet the truth of what Christ proclaimed on the cross itself has been completely lost. What did he say? What was that word that he pronounced in, in the Greek? Tetelestai. It is finished. And then he proved that, didn't he? By, by rising again. Anybody can die on a cross. Thousands of people did that. The Romans made sure of it. And anybody actually can say on a cross, it is finished if they're not in too much pain. But what they can't do is prove it is finished by rising again from the dead. And that is precisely what Jesus did. He did everything that was necessary for our salvation in his struggle on the cross. There, bearing our sins, the wrath of the Father was poured out upon him. He endured the pains of hell, and then he died. He shed his blood, and he died. But three days later, we know he rose from the dead. And he did this so that people might know how to be saved and that by closing with him by faith, they might have that assurance of salvation. And yet here were thousands and thousands of people processing (laughs) through, believing that it was their works of pilgrimage and devotion, seeing and kissing relics and so on that would bring about that salvation or advance them towards salvation, which they could never know that they had, the majority of people in that room did not believe that they could know that they were saved. But they were closer because they'd touched the rock, they'd seen the the place, they'd they'd done this. And so the very place where the gospel was brought to fruition, people who called themselves Christians were acting more and more in accord with the works-based religion of the Pharisees. And that's another thing we saw, obviously, throughout Jerusalem. You, you do see the descendants of Pharisaism and the, the ultra-Orthodox and the Hasidim um, still going through that works-based religion, praying before the Western Wall, sticking bits of paper into the wall that, that are their, their hopes, their desires, their prayers, and so on, all over the place in Jerusalem. There are men, literally, who will devote their entire lives. They'll live on welfare, believe it or not, just so they can spend all day at shul reading the Torah or praying. And whenever you go to the religious sites like the Tomb of David, there'll be, there'll be ultra-Orthodox Jews there who are praying. And they really don't like the tourists and so on. But, well, there it is. Well, why do I bring all that up? Why? I bring it up because it's also very contrary to what Jesus instructed his disciples to do and to believe in the verses that we read in Matthew 28. And we need to take instruction from that. We need to follow the commandments of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. Now, there are two parts to what he said in these verses. In the, uh, I, would, I would ask you to look again at them. Two parts to what he said in verses 16 through 20. First, we are going to see a great claim made by the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 18. And then we have a great command in verses 19 and 20. Now, to set the context of, of what's going on there, uh, after his resurrection, Jesus, you remember, had said that he would meet with his disciples in Galilee. He sent that message. If we'll turn back just to the beginning of the chapter, we can read that, that instruction that he gave in, in the context of the resurrection. Matthew 28, 1. Now, after the Sabbath, at the first day of the week, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring the disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so the women had gone and proclaimed that message that the church has been proclaiming ever since. Jesus is risen. And they gave them his commandment. Go to Galilee. He's going to give you further instructions. And we remember he met, didn't he, first with the disciples on the shore of Galilee, of the Sea of Galilee, a place where I was actually at. One of the funny things to me was whenever I, I... there were lots it was, it was amazing I, I, I can't put it into words really the experiences it was just uh, it was uh, exciting and moving and so on uh, when you go to Capernaum you expect or at least I expected there to be a big distance between the village and the water the ancient village the ruins are still there um, but it really isn't. The village is built right up to the water in a way that you would never do on the sea because, you know, uh, <laughs> a major wave, uh, you know, a tsunami would, would, would drown the entire village. But because this is an inland sea, they, they did it that way. And there, of course, we remember that Jesus had met with Peter on the shore. And three times he asked him, do you love me? And, you know, Peter, who had betrayed his, his Lord by saying three times he didn't know him. He answered, yes, I love you. Finally, you know all things. You know I love you. And he had told Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. He gave him specific instructions. Feed my sheep. Give them good food, wholesome food. Give them what they need. Give them instruction. Now, I'm not sure what what mountain it was that they were. We saw lots of mountains in, in Galilee, what mountain it was that they were on when Jesus ascended. Um, There's lots of speculation about that. It doesn't really matter, but it it would be nice to think it was one of the hills that we saw as we were going through Galilee. Matthew, of course, was there. He's not writing, let me tell you uh, about something I heard. He was somebody who saw the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one of the 11 disciples, Judas having killed himself, Matthew was standing there, and it wasn't just the apostles who were there. We, we believe probably the wider band of disciples further out was there as well. Paul speaks about the 500 who saw the risen Lord. This was probably... The occasion. It is amazing. We might note that uh, they worshiped, which is the right response to Christ. We see his deity here. You remember when, when in Revelation in John, John falls down before a mere angel. The angel, you know, and I say mere angel, this beautiful angel. The angel, what does he say to him? He says, Get up because I too am a fellow creature. When the apostles though fall down before Jesus Christ, he doesn't say get up because of course he is worthy of their worship, being the second person of the Trinity. He is Jesus, the Christ, the son of God. So they worship, but here we read some doubted. I I make note of this and it's kind of you know trail off to the side, but I make note of that simply to note, you can see the risen Lord Jesus and still not believe. There are people who can have historic faith and yet not put their trust in, in Jesus. I, one of the things that's always amazed me is that I, I will actually bump into people who believe the details of the gospel, but have not yet closed with Christ. So you believe he really was resurrected? huh? But you don't believe in him. Mm. <laughs> I'm always taken aback by that, but apparently it didn't even happened on the mountain from which he ascended. Well, as I said, he made a great claim and he gave the great command. The great claim is this all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Who has all authority in the universe? God. No. Let's be more specific here. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus! Thank you. Okay. Jesus has all that authority. How did he prove that he had all authority in heaven and earth? By rising from the dead, right. He had shown throughout his ministry, hadn't he, that he had authority over the weather, he had authority over sickness, he had authority over demons, and now he shows he has authority over sin and death by rising again from the dead. Nothing, nothing in this universe is not under his authority. So who has all right to give every single command? Jesus. Jesus. All right, so that's the great claim. Then he gives a great command. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Jesus says, I have all authority. Now I'm sending you out as what? As as legislators, as potentates, to teach whatever seems right to you. No, he, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, go teach the nations Make disciples, make learners. And what are we going to teach them? We're going to teach all things that I have commanded you. Right. All the things that I have commanded you. He told them they were to carry the gospel to the nations and then when the gospel had done its converting work to make disciples, so they're growing in grace, it's not we just keep repeating the gospel, we, we disciple people so they grow. And what do we teach them is that they become matites, the pupils, the learners. We teach them all the things that Christ has commanded in his word. The church is commissioned to go as ambassadors, bearing the instructions of the king to the world and say, this, the righteous and true king, who has all authority, commands you this day. He offers you grace. He offers you eternal life. And here you need but enlist with him. Trust in him. Become his. And all of these things are yours. That's our calling, brothers and sisters. This all things, though, that he says, all things that I've commanded you is extremely important. It means that ministers like me are not allowed to selectively edit and leave things out. You remember when Paul is delivering his parting address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says this, I did not, well, let me actually read it. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. A little later on, he said, therefore I testify to you this day, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And boy, is that difficult because there's a lot of places in the counsel of God where you would rather not offend people by telling them the truth. Where it says things that the natural man will go, how dare you? You know, maybe with a Greta Thunberg voice, or Thunberg voice. But it's going to offend the living daylights out of them. And a lot of ministers will just, yeah, <laughs> just go around that. I remember once having a group of students come up to me, I won't tell you where I was teaching, but they, uh, they, they came up and they are like, Pastor Webb, Pastor Webb. Today they went over Romans 9. And I'm like, okay, what did they teach? Because this was a dispensational and Arminian leaning seminary, or Bible college. And uh, they said, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. He just like skipped over it. I'm like, yeah, okay, I can understand that. What are you doing? You're editing the word of God. <laughs> There's a lot of things here that are eh, inconvenient. So we're just going to go on. Romans well, 10, that's easier. Let's, let's talk about evangelism. Well, it's not just that we shouldn't take away from the word, though. Obviously, we shouldn't add to the word. We shouldn't think we're wiser than God. Oh, he left a few things out. We can improve upon this. And that's what we said, saw again and again as we went to these sites in the Holy Land. And it made me sick at heart. It really did. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 6, 28 and 29, he says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that, not, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed. Like one of these, Solomon, the richest man of his time, a man who could clothe himself with such finery, doesn't compare to the lilies of the field in terms of the natural beauty, the grace, the amazing, amazing symmetry. Everything that goes into a lily can't compare. And yet, the generation this is the amazing thing the generation that came up after the disciples found the gospel like a beautiful lily, and they said, yeah, we can improve that, we can make it easier. We can add, um, all right, let's see what we do. All right, gold leaf, definitely. Gold is so shiny. Maybe gold on the top and then a little silver on the bottom, we'll, we'll, we'll make the leaf green, I don't think it works. Let's go with silver on the bottom, gold on the top. What else can we do? Mosaics, we'll put little pieces of glass up the stem and then, then in the center, a jewel. No, no, wait. Four jewels in perfect symmetry. And then coming out of the, uh, we can put more jewels at the, at the various places here. And, and then maybe, oh, I, I don't know, a, a picture uh, on top of it in, in stone and, and so on. And after a while, the plant, the beautiful lily, is absolutely crushed by all of the stuff that you put on top of it. You can't even see it. You can no longer see the outline of the the beautiful, pristine lily, just the additions that have been made, that obscure it, that, that crush it without ever improving it. And I must tell you, that's what we do in the church so often. We add our traditions, and that's all that's remembered. When Jesus came to earth, remember, he was dealing with a covenant community that had been observing their traditions instead of God's word. They'd received God's word. They venerated God's word. And then they added so much to it that the glory of the gospel was gone. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures. They did all day long reading them. We went to a place where men literally spend all of their waking hours reading the Torah and praying and praying. And yet never finding salvation. Because there's so <clears throat> much tradition that obscures that covers, that destroys the truth. And you remember how the Pharisees, they became downright furious. For instance, his disciples, they didn't wash their hands before eating. This was to remove ceremonial uncleanness, they said, might have attended to them as they went through the market touching, uh, you know, accidentally a Gentile or a dead thing or something like that. So they said, you must clean your hands before you eat, and they didn't because it's not in the Word of God. It's not actually necessary. And after a while, what happens? You think your hand washing and your fulfilling of these traditions is what gets you into heaven. And there were countless people we met again and again who did this. The inventions of men overloading and squashing the Word of God, pushing it out, and so on. Well, unfortunately, a few hundred years after the giving of the gospel, a few hundred years after the resurrection of Jesus, the clear instructions, go and teach them not what seems right to you, but my commands, what happened was the church began to see themselves less and less as ambassadors and more and more like, originally, legislature legislators, people who could come up with laws and then force them on God's people. God didn't tell you to do this, but we are. And then eventually potentates. We don't even have to discuss this. I can just declare it from the chair with apostolic authority and say, you must do this. So as they moved on to new cultures, they began to co-opt their traditions, their days, their, their festivals, their... Uh, sacrifices their their gods and began to give them the names of saints. Uh, Okay, you you worshipped Freya. Now we're going to worship Mary. Okay, you go to her. Uh, She's Jesus' mom, so he has to do what she says. So you tell him what to do. And as as that happened, the humble handmaiden of the Lord uh, gradually becomes perilously close to being spoken of as part of the Godhead itself. Uh, And One of the things that the Reformation did was it restored. When when we left these sites, I was saying to myself, that, folks, is why we needed a Reformation. Why will it recover three incredibly important things? That all authority had been given to Christ, not the church. He alone had the power to command men's consciences that scripture was sufficient rule and guide for all of our faith, life, and practice, and that by following it, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then thirdly and finally, that the traditions of men have indeed an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, but that ultimately they were of no value, no matter how antique they were, no matter how long they had been observed for. We, we forget that the hand-washing practice that Jesus criticized and replaced, that had been going for nigh on 400 years. You wouldn't have found anybody who didn't practice it who was a, you know, a conscientious Jew. And yet Jesus said, not my word, and therefore not my command. So to quote the great Puritan minister, John Owen, on this subject, he said, in things which concern the worship of God, the commanding power is Christ, and his command the adequate rule and measure of our obedience. The teaching, commanding, and enjoining of others to do and observe those commands is the duty of those entrusted with Christ's authority under him. Their commission to teach and enjoin, and our duty to do and observe have the same rules, the same measure, bounds, and limits. What they teach and enjoin beyond what Christ hath commanded, they do it not by virtue of any commission from him. What we do beyond what he hath commanded, we do it not in obedience to him. What they so teach, they do it in their own name, not his. What we so do, we do in our own strength, not his, nor to his glory. In other words, anything we add to the word of God, not only does it have no value it has no authority because Christ is the authority now what's the application of all of this well I picked this picture it's from our trip it was actually taken in Capernaum as, as the background for a reason and I need to apologize to Ty uh, for getting rid of her background but uh, uh, I needed this one alright um, those of you who were uh, in the slideshow do you remember what's at the very center of these rings yes That's Peter's house. That's the place where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Okay, this is the place that was probably the center of Christ's ministry while he was in Capernaum. That's the original circular wall. You can see the outline of it. And there's a modern, giant modern church that's been built over it in 1990 that has a perspex window. You can look down into it. It's just rubble at this point, but uh, nevertheless, there it is. But you see two further walls, don't you? The first wall that was built around it is kind of uh, its octagonal or or trapezoidal, I think, is the the actual shape. This was one of the reasons that uh, archaeologists were able to identify that this house was probably Peter's house, because they realized that what had happened, as they were going through archaeologically, the first thing they saw was that it was a normal house that had been converted. It had been converted from being a house into obviously a communal worship center. It had been plastered at some point. Um, The house that was originally broken up into various rooms, uh, even though it was very small, uh, was cleared out so it was one central space for worship. So it had gone from being a house to a house church. But then what had happened was in the first century uh, after it had become a house church and then going on into the third century, sometime in the second or third century, what had happened was the trapezoidal church was built around it, okay, making it into a holy site. And then finally, in the fifth century, the Byzantines had come and they had begun building a basilica around those three. So you had three different layers of progressive, holy siting, holy siting, holy siting. Now, a devastating earthquake had hit that, uh, that village, destroying most of the, uh, the houses and um, The synagogue, which dates back to the fifth century, uh, which was built on the ruins of the the early first-century synagogue where Jesus preached, um, it it really knocked Capernaum flat, literally. And then, of course, you had uh, Muslim invasions. But had that not happened, what would have happened was eventually you would have a church like the Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre above it, you know, and all of these accoutrements all over it gold and and iconography and so on. But what had happened? Well, gradually, stage by stage, what had once been a house and then a house church, which isn't particularly bad, a place where the gospel was proclaimed in the first century had become a shrine that pilgrims came to in order to be near this place that Jesus had once lived. And I have no doubt that had Capernaum not been devastated, as I said, it gradually would have grown into this this monstrosity. I I say this, let this be a warning to you. Because we seem to think, okay, when somebody comes in and says, we need to follow Christ's commands and not add anything to it, no days, no festivals, no traditions, no no cassocks, no smells, bells, incense, so on. They think it's all going to happen. You're thinking it's going to happen all at once. No, we're talking about generations. What happens is the first line is breached. The line between, don't do anything I don't tell you to do, and I think I can improve on this and make it better. What we think is first, this, will, this is harmless, and it won't hurt. And so we step beyond that line. But the moment that we do that, the don't do anything that I don't tell you to do, teach them only that which I command it, has fallen. It's like when a kid first begins to disobey and isn't stopped. You understand what I'm saying? Once they've breached that line, they're like, hey, I got away with that. Got away with that, too. And then, eventually, you know, they're leaping and pounding in terms of the, the sins that they are committing. Because they weren't stopped to begin with. They didn't stop at the line of don't do the things that we don't tell you to do. And so on. And that's what happened. The second wall appears, and then generation by generation... All of this stuff builds up. And what happens? The gospel disappears. Now, the American Evangelical Church doesn't have all the iconography, or maybe it does. What is happening within the American Evangelical Church? We've gone from a few hundred years ago, we didn't add that much to the beautiful gospel. We didn't gild the lily. But now you go into an evangelical church on a day like this, and you will see... An extravaganza that is not commanded within Scripture. Uh, I was appalled. Lifeway sent me a um, a video or a series of videos, three videos. Uh, and Lifeway is the Southern Baptist Church. Is the, and it was literally called Easter Fails. And it started out with there was a uh, you know one of the the giant Easter plays in one of these mega churches and they had a tomb that was built of cardboard, and then uh, they had an actor obviously behind a paper door, and their idea was they were gonna have blaring light, millions of watts of, of light shining on this paper uh, tomb door, and then he would cast it aside and come forth, Jesus coming forth on Easter morning. But somebody didn't do their physics and didn't realize what happens when you blast a piece of black cardboard with millions of watts of light. What happened to the piece of black cardboard? it burst into flame. So you have Jesus escaping from fiery death in the tomb. Barely, as people are rushing with fire extinguishers. And then they had the ascension of Jesus, and he's supposed to go straight up, and the actor's supposed to be like, oh, but unfortunately, they got a vibration, and he began to twirl. And his robe was kind of like a hospital robe, you know, open in the back, and he's only wearing underwear. And suddenly you got the twirling underwear guy going in And you're like, holy micro, this is the worst of medieval Catholicism. <coughs> not the gospel? When did Jesus say, get the guy on the wire and you know, pull him into the... That's, what I'm, that, that's not part of the gospel. Mm-hmm. But we do it. And we're doing it increasingly. And it appeals to the world. But it's not the gospel. And we can eventually, believe it or not, get to exactly that place where people are kneeling before slabs of rock and thinking they get blessings by that. Brothers and sisters, we laugh about these things, but that's going on all over America right now. What's been lost though? The beauty of the original gospel. I talk to Christians, professing Christians, and I ask them in conversations, do you know what justification by faith is? They can't answer. How are you saved? And they'll give me answers that, that actually land on because I, Note this, anytime you answer a question about salvation, how are you saved with because I, you've got the wrong pronoun. Amen. If it doesn't start with because he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Your salvation is founded in the wrong place. It's because he died. It's because he rose. I love Alistair Begg has this wonderful, I was listening to it uh, this morning again, he has this wonderful little vignette. <laughs> Um, you know, it's the thief on the cross shows up at heaven, and the angel, obviously, this is not what would happen, but the angel says, How did you get here? He says, I don't know. Uh, he says, You know, uh, on what grounds are we letting you in? Were you, you know, did you go to church? Are you the faithful? No. Do you know the Ten Commandments? No. Can you explain justification by faith alone? Huh? Really. So, why should we let you in? Well, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's what it really comes down to, brothers and sisters, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So watch out. One of the things that I noted was that it's not just in the Western Wall they're pushing pieces of paper. And they, oh, I thought it was trash in the middle of Mary's house. I was like, this is awful. Christians throwing trash into the middle of, of Peter's house. There were little bits of paper. Christians are throwing their prayers into Peter's house. Brothers and sisters, there is one mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Never forget that. It's upon him and his completed work that we depend. Never let all of the garbage come in and begin to overlay the gospel. Never think this addition is harmless. It never is. Depend upon the Lord Jesus who died, who rose, and is coming again. Simple gospel message that saves. Let that be the heart of your salvation. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we thank you so much that there is nothing that we need do, no works we need perform beyond, oh Lord, what Christ has already done for us. He has done the work. He was the one who lived the life of perfect righteousness. He is the one who rose again and he is the one who is coming back. Help us to put all of our faith and our trust in him to depend upon him and to proclaim what he has commanded, to make disciples of the nations, teaching only that which Jesus has commanded, not making up things and thinking that they will do us good when they have no power. We know that all authority has been given to him. Let us remember that. Let us remember, therefore, that we are to be ambassadors, declaring what the King of kings and the Lord of lords has said to a lost and dying world, that they might be saved. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.